Raise your words, not voice. It is rain that grows flowers, not thunder. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. The wound is the place where the light enters you. What you seek is seeking you. Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Stop acting so small. You are the universe in ecstatic motion. Gabriel said to Adam, God, may he be praised, has commanded me to present you with a choice. You are to choose one of three things, reason, religion, or shame. Adam replied, I choose reason. Thereupon shame and religion spoke. Then we too will be with you, O Adam, for God has ordered us to keep company with reason, wherever it might be. The learned man understands the ignorant, for he was once ignorant himself. Modesty is the decoration of poverty. Thanksgiving is the decoration of affluence and wealth. Patience and endurance are the ornaments and decorations of calamities and distress. Humility is the decoration of lineage, and eloquence is the decoration of speech. Committing to memory is the decoration of tradition, and bowing the shoulders is the decoration of knowledge. Decency and good morale is the decoration of the mind, and a smiling face is the decoration of munificence and generosity. Not boasting of doing favors is the decoration of good deeds, and humility is the decoration of service. Spending less is the decoration of contentment, and abandoning the meaningless and unnecessary things is the decoration of abstention and fear of God. Do not let your difficulties fill you with anxiety. After all, it is only in the darkest nights that the stars shine more brilliantly. The first to apologize is the bravest. The first to forgive is the strongest. The first to forget is the happiest. Don't grieve. Anything you lose comes round in another form. The lapse of time uncovers hidden secrets. We should not be ashamed to acknowledge truth from whatever source it comes to us, even if it is brought to us by former generations and foreign people. For him who seeks the truth, there is nothing of higher value than truth itself. I said to the night, if you are in love with the moon, it is because you never stay for long. The night turned to me and said, it is not my fault. I never see the sun. How can I know that love is endless? Ignorance leads to fear. Fear leads to hatred. And hatred leads to violence. If the ignorant keep silent, people would not differ. Lovers find secret places inside this violent world where they make transactions with beauty. Welcome to Nearer's Fiddle, Episode 13, Bucking the Axis. Our opening this week comes from an assortment of mostly Shia poetry and quotes. These days, we get what seems to be a ton of news about the Islamic world. Because we're peppered with daily news about and from the world of Islam, I think Americans believe they know what Muslims are like. But the news we receive is news from one small quarter of Islam. 
the radical and militant side. It's as if someone from the Middle East were given daily doses of news about the crimes and atrocities committed by the most militant Americans, and that was all they knew about our community. This person could be excused for assuming that he or she knew what Americans were like, but that wouldn't be the case. The small piece of culture that I've tried to expose in our opening this week comes from one corner of the Muslim world. And of course, can't explain what it's like to be a Shia, much less what the whole Muslim world is like. But perhaps it might give just a quick peek into a world our media doesn't seem to be interested in covering. I noted in episode 8 that Alexander the Great, a single man, did much to change the direction of Western civilization. This week, we look at the man, Muhammad, who set the course of Middle Eastern civilization and at the world that grew out of the seeds he planted. Muhammad was from Mecca, near the Hellenistic and Byzantine empires we've been talking about, though outside these empires. The area of Arabia, where Mecca was located, was controlled by local tribes, each having their own tribal lands. Though Muhammad was known for his honesty and seemed to be quite a successful merchant in Mecca, his life was not particularly extraordinary until he was about 40. At that point, a few years after the year 600 AD, he began receiving revelations from God. Within a few years, Muhammad began preaching in the stratified polyistic world of Mecca that there was only one God, and this God was Allah. His preachings emphasized social and economic justice, which earned him a following from among the lower echelons of Meccan society, much as the early followers of Christ. The first followers of Muhammad, as followers today, saw Muhammad as the last in series of prophets that stretched from Abraham to the major Old Testament prophets like Elijah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, to the minor Old Testament prophets like Amos, Obadiah, Habakkuk, to Jesus, who was seen as the last major prophet before Muhammad. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are therefore considered Abrahamic religions in that they all trace their beliefs back to Abraham. Muslims see both Jews and Christians as people of the book, though they have gone astray to some degree from the true teachings. During his lifetime, Muhammad went from being the leader of a small sect that had to flee from Mecca due to persecution from the number of sects of idol worshippers there, to returning to Mecca shortly before the end of his life with his ever-increasing number of his now militarily strong followers. From his first teachings to the end of his life, his followers continued to increase significantly in numbers. Muhammad's first revelation was in about 610 AD, and he continued to have revelations until the end of his life. Some scholars believe he recited the texts of his teachings to scribes who wrote these teachings down. Others believe his followers memorized these teachings and later wrote them down after his death. These teachings existed in separately dictated scrolls, papyri, or other parchment at the time of his death in 632 AD. When Muhammad died, he was the most powerful military and religious leader in Arabia. Most of the tribes had converted to Islam and swore their allegiance to him. He did not designate a successor, so his followers gathered following his death and designated his father-in-law, Abu Bakr, as his successor. The first Caliph, the chief Muslim's civil and religious leader and successor to Muhammad. Different followers had written down different versions of his teachings, all pretty close to the same, 
but there were minor differences. Work was done under the first three caliphs to standardize these teachings. The result was the Quran, the holy book of Islam. Abu Bakr quickly began consolidating Islam's power. He only served as caliph for two years before his death. But during those two years, his forces unified the entire Arab peninsula under the banner of Islam. Now Islam was in a state of fast expansion. The following three caliphs, Umar, Uthman, and Ali, were and still are highly respected by Muslims. They reigned from 634 to 661 and are known today as the rightly guided caliphs. During these caliphates, all of Egypt, Syria, and the Levant was under Muslim control as well as most of the Sassanid Empire. This was the portion of lands that Alexander the Great had conquered that was controlled by the heirs of General Seleucus I. This had later fallen to a Farsi general and became the Sassanid or Sasanian Empire. All of this constitutes a huge amount of territory along the lines of other empires we've talked about, but was all conquered within 30 years of Muhammad's death. How did the Muslims conquer so much territory so fast? As always, multiple factors went into this extraordinary military expansion, and different historians will give you different answers. Here are my top few reasons. The bulk of the territory they captured was from the Byzantine and Persian empires. Neither the Byzantine or the Persian subjects appreciated the taxes and oppression of their overlords. The Muslims quickly gained a reputation for ruling with a light hand. They were often viewed as liberators by their new subjects. Having a population that favors an invasion army can be a huge advantage by way of military intelligence and establishing supply chains. In addition, the Arabs were a very mobile tribal society. They were able to cover vast distances with their armies more quickly than their stationary opponents. Both Persia and Byzantium were empires in decline at that time. They had been warring with each other for many years when the Arabs invaded their empires. They didn't have the resources to fight the new, highly mobile, highly motivated Arabs when they attacked. The Arabs were also blessed with extraordinary generalship, especially under Caliph Umar and his general Khalid ibn al-Walid. Finally, although I've never read this specifically with regard to early Muslim fighters, I suspect they might have agreed with the phrase I've read with regard to the Mongols and other fighters that came from land not as fertile and more difficult to live off. The phrase usually goes something like, tough lands make for tough people. In other words, it was difficult to live off the land in the harsh Arabian climate. This made for men who were tough and better able to handle the rigors of life as a warrior, not to mention who were much better fighters. At any rate, Caliph Ali was assassinated in 661 AD, leaving Islam an empire that stretched from Tunisia in the west to Central Asia in the east and resulting in Islam's first great crisis. It's not that Islam hadn't had any crises yet. Three of the first four rightly guided caliphs had been assassinated, and Caliph Ali fought in a civil war, which didn't go well for him and ended in the establishment of the Umayyad dynasty. The assassination of one caliph and establishment of a rival as the successor caliph by this time was not generally seen as a disaster for Islam. What caused this crisis was that there was a group of Muslims who felt that Muhammad's successor should be one of his descendants, which Caliph Ali was, and another group who didn't believe this should be the case. 
in choosing the successor to Khalifa Ali. This difference in beliefs led to great differences within the Ummah, or body of Muslim believers. When these disagreements couldn't be reconciled, it ultimately led to Islam's great schism, the split between Sunni and Shia Muslims. Sunni Muslims followed the Umayyad caliphs, and the Shia ultimately went their separate way. As with the schism between the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, it's a schism that has never been healed. Today, about 90% of Muslims are Sunni. The Shia Muslims live primarily in Iran and Iraq, but are also spread throughout the Muslim diaspora as the Sunnis are. The Umayyad caliphs, who are now also Sunni caliphs, continued building the empire of Islam. By the end of the Umayyad caliphs over 90 years later, their empire spread all the way from Spain and Portugal to portions of India and Pakistan. One could walk over 5,500 miles and still be within the Umayyad empire. There'd been many empires that had been one at the point of a sword in the world by this time. What was different about this empire is that the armies that brought it were members of a brand new religion. I don't know what their leaders thought about acquiring more and more peoples for their new empire. I suspect much of their motivation was the same as all of the world's great conquerors. Once we start acquiring more and more, our acquisitive emotions kick in and they just keep telling us, I want more, I want more. After the Mongols had conquered all of China and the world that they knew, why did they keep going and conquer parts of Russia and Europe that they had previously never even knew existed? After Alexander conquered all of the land that he knew, why did he want to keep going further and further into the interior of India? All of the known world wasn't enough for him? It reminds me of the movie All the Money in the World about J. Paul Getty. It's based on the evidently true story of the kidnap of Getty's grandson and Getty's refusal to pay the ransom for what seems like forever. At one point, Getty's advisor asked him something like, You're the richest man in the world. The ransom they're asking is paltry compared to the money you have. How much money would you have to have before you would pay them? Getty's answer was simple. More. When the acquisitive gene kicks in, it takes control. The great conquerors could never seem to get enough to satisfy them. So, an empire from Portugal to Pakistan was what the Muslims ended up with about 120 years after Muhammad's death. How much was their conquest motivated religiously? I don't know. These were members of a new religion and a very devoutly religious community. It seems they certainly would have also felt that they were doing this for the glory of Allah. But at the same time, they didn't force religious conversions on their subjects. As mentioned earlier, the Muslims' new subjects in at least part of the conquered Persian and Byzantine empires saw them as liberators from a more repressive regime. People remained free to worship any god they chose and were never forced to convert. It's obvious by now that the empires that repressed their subjects the least had the most longevity, for what seems to us to be obvious reasons. However, this was not the norm in the ancient world. So I would call Muslims under the Umayyad and subsequent caliphates more enlightened in their governing philosophies than most empires at the time. They called non-Muslims in their empire Dimi and considered them a protected class. Dimi were therefore protected from most oppression in the empire, but Muslims were a preferred group in society. The Dimi, for example, had to pay a tax called the jizya that Muslims didn't pay. This tax was higher in some dynasties and some areas than others, 
so it's hard to discuss in general terms. But I think it's safe to say that although it wasn't typically at a level we would call oppressive, it did generally hurt to have to pay it. In addition, non-Muslim subjects did often have limitations put on how they could dress, as well as limitations on their religious displays in public and restrictions on where they could worship. Yet as long as non-Muslims paid the jizya, non-Muslim religious and social groups were able to have a certain degree of autonomy in governing their own affairs. This situation had the effect of allowing a certain degree of Christianity under the Muslim rulers. As we noticed in talking about the Roman Catholic Church in the Western Empire, the tendency is for power to centralize under one person. It's the tendency of not only the man in ultimate authority, but also those whose power derives from him, that is, to guard this power very jealously. Those who do not strictly follow their rules and commandments are quickly branded as heretics. That is, they are seen by those in power as outgroups, and as such, a threat to those in power. Consequently, the Roman Catholic Church maintained an amazing amount of control over Christians in the Western Empire throughout the medieval period. I think Islam generally followed this pattern as well. Islam had their schism with Sunni and Shia. Other sects would grow up, such as the Sufi, but on the whole, both Sunni and Shia Islam maintained a strong central control over their respective religions. The opposite is true regarding the spread of Christianity within Islamic territories. As long as they had paid the jizya and obeyed the time, place, and manner restrictions placed on them, Christians were pretty much free to worship as they wished. The course of Christianity under the Muslim dynasties, therefore, provides an example of what happens when people are free to choose their own religious beliefs. In this situation, there are two historical drivers that come into play. The first I call the discipleship driver. Most people are not born with a strong desire to be great leaders. Most people, instead, want to have a strong leader that they can follow and trust. This inclination in human nature seems to be more pronounced the more extreme one's beliefs are. The other driver is the leadership driver. It's the desire on the part of those who have strong leadership drives to have their own loyal followers. And these same people also do not want to play second fiddle to a stronger leader. This was a great driver in the great schism in Christianity. The Patriarch of Constantinople did not want to bow down and accept the dictates of the Pope in Rome, so he split with the Catholic Church and became the leader of the Eastern Orthodox Church with his own loyal followers. This kind of schism was rare in Christianity and Islam because they were both big enough and powerful enough to prevent breakaway groups. Once Christianity was allowed to go its own way, under the Umayyad, Abbasid, and subsequent Islamic dynasties, it was freed from the repressive control of the Pope or the Patriarch of Constantinople, and became subject to drivers such as the leadership and discipleship drives. With these drivers in play, a number of different Christian sects began to proliferate in the Muslim Empire. I don't want to overstate this. It wasn't a good place for Christians. They had some restrictions, such as dress restrictions, they had to pay the jizya tax, and eventually Christians were forbidden to proclaim the gospel openly. Yet, if you belonged to one of these several Christian sects that was persecuted by the Roman Catholic or Byzantine churches, you could worship safely under Muslim rule as long as you followed the conditions Islam placed on you. Overall, the Islamic world seems to have been a well-governed place by ancient standards during the first several centuries of its existence. Foreigners were allowed to live and practice their beliefs within the confines we've talked about. 
thinkers were relatively free, for the ancient world, to think and teach as they saw fit, and trade was allowed to thrive, again with certain non-too-restrictive conditions. I give it high marks and consider it one of the two best-governed dynasties in the world at the time. The Tang dynasty was also well-governed by standards of the ancient world, but it lasted only from the 7th to the 10th centuries. The cultural flowering and free market that seems to have burgeoned at the end of the Tang dynasty was cut short in the 10th century due first to disorder at the end of that dynasty, and then to the more restrictive monarchy during the Song dynasty that followed. The period of economic prospering, cultural flowering, and advances in medicine, mathematics, and what we now call the sciences that occurred in the Islamic world at this time is called the Islamic Golden Age. The importance of this blossoming of commerce, science, and art between the 8th and 14th century is actually hard to overstate. In 762 AD, Baghdad was established as the capital for Al-Mansur, the second caliph of the Abbasid dynasty. Under Al-Mansur, Baghdad quickly became a center for learning and commerce. Centrally located between Europe and the Mediterranean countries, Baghdad maintained and enhanced ancient trade routes of the Persians, which benefited Baghdad and other major Muslim cities. This made the Islamic dynasties from the 8th to the 14th century very prosperous and centers of economic importance. The Quran puts a heavy emphasis on learning and the acquisition of knowledge. This was taken very seriously during this period, and efforts to enhance learning and knowledge were promoted in the Islamic world. These efforts included a translation movement in which scholarly works were translated into Arabic and widely studied. The Abbasid caliphs established what came to be known as the House of Wisdom in the 8th century. This became a center of learning, a translation center, and a critical library. It was here many works of Aristotle, Plato, Euclid, and other Greek philosophies were translated and came to have a strong influence on Islamic thought. Scholars were specifically recruited to the House of Wisdom, which became a place where Muslim, Christian, and Jewish scholars collaborated. The Islamic world also established the first degree-granting university. The Muslims learned the trade of papermaking from the Chinese. It had been a closely guarded secret in China, but the Muslims made the knowledge of how to make paper widely available. This, along with the development of bookbinding, allowed Arab scholars to copy and widely disseminate their translations and knowledge. This was of crucial importance because before the discovery of paper, preparation of parchment or other media was too expensive and time-consuming to allow for widespread distribution of books and manuscripts. All of this led to great discoveries and advances in academics, including the invention of algebra, discoveries and improvement in other areas of mathematics, chemistry, biology, medicine, and astronomy. There was also a great flowering of arts during this period. By the end of the 14th century, however, this period of growth and flowering was in decline. It had been in decline for a while when the Ottoman Turks took Baghdad in 1543. And the Ottoman Turks were not thinkers and did not value learning as their predecessors had. The freedom and encouragement that Islamic scholars were once given under the early caliphates was lost, and whatever was left of the Golden Age fizzled out under the Ottoman caliphates. The end of the Islamic Golden Age did, however, coincide with the beginning of the intellectual movement in the Western European Middle Ages. A great deal of knowledge of mathematics, science, and philosophy that came to Europe during the Middle Ages 
and ultimately fed the intellectual movement that would become known as the Renaissance, came from the Muslim world. We've talked about the Axial Age. This is the time roughly between the 8th century BC and the time of Christ. As I've noted, every major religious system we have today was developed during this period, except one. That's why I'm calling this episode Bucking the Axis. This is where we are at this point in history. It's still perfectly okay to spread your empire by military force. It'll still be centuries before the ethics of this is questioned. Yet at this point in world history, the Muslims push humanity one step further. It seems popular today among academics and history writers to talk about how enlightened Muslims were, especially in the Al-Andalus region of southern Spain. Muslims, Christians, and Jews all lived and worked together in harmony and in acceptance of each other's faith. Well, take the Christians and Jews and put them in ghettos in many places, tax the Christians and Jews for having different beliefs, sometimes rather heavily, and allow the Muslims to look down on the inferior people of the book, and I think you've got it. We watch movies of previous historical periods and think, I'd like to get to know them. I think the answer is, no, we wouldn't. At that point in history, they were all judgmental and looked down on their social inferiors, who were expected to be subservient. This happened in every non-hunter-gatherer culture up until the Enlightenment began to change this. It happened with Christians, it happened with Muslims, it happened in China, in Japan, you name it. Having said that, I think we would like Muslims at the time more than other groups. Yes, they had an era of superiority when it came to non-Muslims, but they were more accepting than others. Just as a Roman equestrian would consider his stable manager to be below him socially, but could be very fond of him as long as he accepted his role in society, which almost everyone did, Muslims within the Umayyad or Abbasid dynasties, I think, could be very fond of their Christian or Jewish friends, as long as they accepted their place within Muslim society. This was certainly a step well beyond what was happening within Christian Western Europe at the time, where Jews were often thought of as greedy and untrustworthy. I'd like to say that this continued and that Western Europe adopted this from Muslims along with algebra and a love for Aristotle. Sadly, the enlightened attitudes of the Dar al-Islam, or Islamic world, would change when the Ottomans controlled the empire in the 14th century, and Western Europe never adopted Islam's more enlightened view of society. They would have to wait another 400 years to start figuring it out for themselves. We've seen it common for a culture of integrity and strong character to grow up under a newly established empire. But for that culture to fade away, allowing cities and empires to be eventually ruled by men of weak character, or eventually men without morals such as Caligula and Nero. This doesn't seem to have happened much in the Dar al-Islam from the 7th to the 14th centuries. Trying to do an accurate job of giving the flavor of an entire civilization in one episode is a daunting task. This is more so when that civilization is really two. I've tried to offer just a little flavor of Shia philosophy and poetry in the opening. For people who know Shia as well, you probably know that there's something in their culture that can be very familiar to many Americans. It's urbane and cultured with a deep love of poetry and strong wisdom literature. Sadly, I don't have time for more. And the Sunni culture certainly deserves its due as well. 
In my previous life, I was an attorney. I was lucky to have several SUNY clients over the years. I learned what I think many businessmen all over the United States who've had the fortune to work with and get to know SUNYs have learned. It's usually a blessing in your life when you get to know a SUNY. This is my own experience, so I won't swear that it's universally correct, but the SUNYs I've known have been thoughtful, respectful, and kind, and are mostly introverts. I've known enough SUNYs to make me believe that being loud and extroverted is not generally a part of their culture. From what I've seen, being discreet, respectful, and kind to others seem to be high on the list of SUNY values. When I listen to mainstream media, however, this is not the impression I get. Instead, the media report on the atrocities committed by Islamists. It's a big reason I limit my exposure to mainstream media. CNN knows that when they associate the word Islamist with terrorist, the average person listening doesn't draw the distinction between Islamist and Islamic. For CNN and other mainstream news outlets, it's good for you to fear people. The more you fear, the more you watch their network, the more market share they will have. Sadly for CNN, but better for our world. Many girls and boys throughout the U.S. are going to school with Muslims and learning how kind and thoughtful they are. CNN and other mainstream news outlets may have been able to scare older generations into fearing Muslims, but I'm confident that our younger generations will not buy into their tactics. At least that's my profound hope. As regular listeners know by now, every week we stop by some major historical period and pluck a few plums from that period that will give us insight on how we got to where we are now. As such, we never get to linger on the more interesting details that can make stories of a historical period come alive. Nowhere is that more true than this week's episode, where we cover an entire civilization. Although it's hard to recommend one book, this week I'm going to suggest Destiny Disrupted, A History of the World Through Islamic Eyes by Tamim Amsari. Enjoy. See you next week.